With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join me on the turning point up close and personal with leaders and get to know what makes their metal and fiber. I am Keshav Murugesh and I look forward to unraveling greatness with you. The Turning Point Podcast is now on Spotify. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by THR's chief TV critic and my pal, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you doing? I am doing okay, just surfing an ever-changing media landscape. How about you? Oh my God, same. This is the amount of change that is happening, not just in the TV industry, but across the entertainment spectrum is in 2020 alone is just mind-blowing. I can't I, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around it. We're gonna try in this episode, but it's just I think every entertainment journalist today, especially as we record this <laughs> Thursday, is just like their head is spinning. We've got layoffs going on today at Disney. Warner Media just blew up the theatrical distribution model. Yeah. Well, we will we will continue to attempt to do our weekly service of making sense of things as best we can. And if you know an entertainment reporter, send them a virtual hug because they probably need one. Well, getting underway, let's start with headlines. Leading off, Hillary and Chelsea Clinton will host an Apple docuseries called Gutsy Women based on their book of the same name. Elsewhere at the tech giant, Eugenio Derbez will star in a bilingual comedy series, Acapulco, inspired by the actor's 2017 feature, How to Be a Latin Lover. And Gugu Mbatha-Raw will reunite with her former morning show star, Reese Witherspoon, for the psychological thriller, Surface. At Netflix, Melissa McCarthy and her husband and frequent collaborator Ben Falcone will star in comedy series, God's Favorite Idiot, marking the couple's sixth collaboration. Over at Amazon... Pandemic drama Utopia has been canceled after one season. And the retail giant, this is super interesting, will be the exclusive first run home to the final 10 episodes of History Channel's Vikings, with the basic cable network airing the remainder of season six at a date to be determined next year. So we talked a little bit at the top of the show about windowing changing. This is a great example on obviously a much smaller scale. Um, Elsewhere at Amazon, the retail giant has also added 20 new cast members to the Lord of the Rings adaptation, bringing the swelling cast to 35 with more to come. On the casting front, Army Hammer will star in the Godfather making of scripted drama series from Paramount Plus. Uh, 
which is, of course, if you've been paying attention, the rebranded version of CBS All Access. Juliana Margulies will reoccur on the second season of Apple's The Morning Show, and Helen Hunt has joined Stars' adaptation of Blind Spotting. On the renewal front, The Masked Singer has been picked up for a fifth season at Fox. And congratulations to Elliot Page on his transition. The actor will continue to star in Umbrella Academy, which was recently renewed for its third season on Netflix. Anytime someone stands in their true light, the world becomes a better place. So congratulations to Elliot Page. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive right into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, Warner Media just blew up the theatrical window after last week's announcement that Wonder Woman 1984 would stream on HBO Max and debut in theaters on Christmas Day. The company revealed this week that its entire 2021 theatrical slate, that's 17 feature films, including the Matrix sequel, Suicide Squad and Dune, among others, will arrive in the same idea day and date in theaters and on HBO Max. It's landscape shifting. It's a paradigm shift. It's just it's probably among the biggest news of the year. It is. And it's obviously it's sort of a culmination of the year's kind of tiptoeing trends, theatrically speaking. You know, we had obviously the decision to send Hamilton to Disney Plus. And then, of course, you had Mulan going to Disney Plus for the additional surcharge. And then you had 30 bucks. Yeah. And then you had Wonder Woman to HBO Max. So everything has kind of been taking steps in this direction. But there had always been in each of those cases the insistence that it was not going to be basically an all-encompassing thing, you know. So Disney Plus could say we're having Mulan available for extra money, but definitely Black Widow is not going this same route. Well, here you do indeed have HBO Max getting the entire 2021 Warner Brothers theatrical slate. That is well over a billion dollars in production budgeted motion pictures. Yeah, that that is just massive. It is obviously horrible for the theatrical movie industry. There's no good thing about it. And they're saying, at least at Warner Brothers, this is only a 2021 thing that they can backtrack. But what are the odds that you can really backtrack from this, Leslie? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't cover the, the theatrical business, but it's, you know, a, as the expression goes, once the genie is out of the bottle, it, it, it's hard to go back in. So, you know, it is worth noting that, you know, these films will be available on HBO Max for 30 days or a month. And then who knows what I'm guessing they'll be probably still in theaters or or have some other distribution, whether it's it's pay-per-view or on demand, et cetera, or whatever the kids are calling it these days you know, DVD releases like this changes the entire ecosystem. And even before the pandemic, windowing was a fascinating subject to follow in the films on the film side, because you're you're looking at how long a film can actually play in theaters, because before it goes to basic cable or before it comes to pay-per-view, before it goes uh, to cable and, and has all those worldwide deals, but yeah, this has been something that that's changing, you know, in the in the last few years and and has been expedited by the pandemic. And as we said last week, when we were talking about Wonder Woman 1984, this is a major, major, major play to bolster HBO Max. And the company is saying that it's the plan for 2021. And obviously, in response to the ongoing pandemic, which I mean, it's a disaster here in L.A., I'm afraid to leave my house. So, yeah, you know, but 
you know, to, to your point, can the genie go back into the bottle? I, I don't think so, because you're with this move. I mean, if you're a, a theater operator, I'm pissed. <laughs> right. That's a lot of money that you're losing. But you're also completely closed right now in, in, in a lot of areas in the country. I mean, international is a different subject, but HBO Max is also not available internationally yet. So then you've got the Roku mess of it all like it, this is. Yeah, this is a developing story and you're going to see a lot of analysis and, and hot takes coming in the next couple of days. But it was important for us to touch on as we cover the TV industry that, you know, look, the line between TV and films and streaming and theatrical, that's gone now. It is. And so, you know, we can repeat an awful lot of the things that we said in our segment on Wonder Woman. And, and you know, some of them, most of them remain true that. The future, as we say, is streaming. There's no question about that. That is how everyone is viewing what the business model is. And so for AT&T, for Warner Brothers, the advantages to having HBO Max as a robust destination streaming platform, I don't know if they outweigh the amount that you would lose theatrically on all of these movies. Clearly it doesn't. But it has whatever value it has, and that's a lot. So, you know, it's the same thing we said last time. that There are a lot of people out there who simply don't know they have access to HBO Max. And this is going to be yet another way of getting those people in. But as we go forward, I think the story is going to continue to be more and more as viewers are having to perform triage on how many of these streaming services they can afford. There's a lot of basically justification to making sure that you're not one of the ones that gets cut. You know, you don't want to be hypothetical small streaming service X if, you know, if HBO Max has the entire Warner Brothers theatrical library. So that's what plus Game of Thrones, plus (laughs) Friends, plus Big Bang Theory, plus every single program that HBO has ever created, Sopranos, et cetera. Yeah. Plus all the the entire catalog of DC movies, plus J.J. Abrams, DC TV shows, plus Greg Berlanti, original DC TV shows with a higher budget like Green Lantern. I mean, they're doing everything in their power to make HBO Max worth $15 a month, which is the same price people who haven't cut the cord yet, like myself, are paying for HBO proper. So we get HBO Max because we already subscribe. But this is, you know, the other piece of it, too, is. You know, the free trial for HBO Max is going to end, We, you know, at least according to the Internet, is going to end before Wonder Woman launches uh, on Christmas. So AT&T, Warner Media's parent company, wants your $15. They, do. they want your $15 a month, and, and they're going out of their way, putting all of their relationships with theatrical distribution people and, and partners at risk to get your $15 a month. So... Yeah, this is and I, and like you yeah, said, this w- this won't impact you if you already have it because you already subscribed to HBO. But the thing I was wondering on Twitter is at what point that ceases to be the case. At what point the you already pay for HBO, so you get this for free, quote unquote. At, at what point that has to cease to be? Like at what point there becomes the HBO Max Plus secondary theatrical tier? You know, and how much would you pay for that? With all of these movies, would you pay an extra five dollars a month for, you know, 17 Warner Brothers first run theatrical movies? Of course you would. Yes. Without question, you would. But would you pay? Well, well, yeah. I mean, if you pay fifteen dollars for a ticket to go see a movie, if it's safe, 
you're going to spend $15 a month to see whatever, to get whatever movie is out that month, plus all the value add. And there's tons of originals coming. They've got Gossip Girl and all these other, you know, TV shows, plus the entire library. But I'm, I mean, I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the need though for an additional surcharge, something else to go on. If I'm paying t- for HBO twice. Yes. If you, if, at what, oh, no. at what point? Oh, see. I, I mean, they're forcing you to cut the, they're forcing people to, to choose either, either cut the cord and pay a la carte for HBO Max and Disney Plus and Netflix and Hulu and Discovery Plus, which was going to be this topic, but obviously got bumped. But like, you know, they're forcing people to choose, cut the cord or subscribe to these platforms. And right now we're paying for all of it. And and not and not just uh, pay for all these platforms, but at some point they're forcing people to choose, you know, between this and Netflix or this and Hulu or this and Amazon. And I think at the beginning of the year, the gap between those three services, between Netflix, Hulu and Amazon and everything else was a large gap. And I think now that HBO Max has definitely put itself right there in that big group of four. And that just means that all of the other streaming services, whether it's eventually soon to come and evolve Paramount Plus, whether it's, you know, Peacock, which exists but heaven knows not in the conversation and they would insist at peacock that they're doing something completely different because it's it's primarily free it's primarily ad supported blah 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 but but you know not only is money finite but time is finite so yeah so but don't forget (laughs) you know as you talk about peacock don't forget you know of all the platforms that had their launch most disrupted I'm going to give that to, that that prize to Peacock. Yes, it sucked that the Friends reunion get bumped to next year because no one can can sit in the same room on the on the Burbank soundstage and get back together on the orange couch. But Peacock was supposed to have the Olympics as a launch pad, right? Like you don't get a bigger launch pad, and that's coming in 2021. You know, The Office is leaving Netflix at the end of the year and going to Peacock. That basically is going to be a second soft launch for them and the and the olympics went when and if i think they they happen next year will be another launch too so you know saved by the bell moved whatever needle for however many minutes you know last week or whenever it launched over thanksgiving and you know as far as i can see it's not, it's not really in the conversation anymore but peacock is still going to have a huge 2020 Oh, peacock, peacock. a huge 2021 peacock's not going right? anywhere. 2021 oh my god <laughs> I mean, mine is melting right now no pe- peacock's yeah. not going anywhere and i definitely didn't mean to imply that i think when it comes to having no no, no but i'm just saying it's like you have to get you're going to want to watch the olympics right and watch you know whatever obscure event that, that you want i mean for me it's you know if there's softball i'm going to stay up until three o'clock in the morning and watching softball but like you're going to want Peacock to get the Olympics. You're going to want to people are going to want to watch the the office if they don't already own it on DVD or if they even have a DVD player anymore. You know, the, there's every service is doing what it can to make it a must have to your point, Dan. So wh- what's the breaking point? You know, is the cable bundle the, ba- the, the breaking point? Because you're not are you going to s- still pay for CBS All Access or Paramount Plus to get a making of the Godfather show or to be able to watch? repeats of CSI and and presumably the new CSI, because don't forget, they're rebooting that too. You know, at at some point, the streaming bundle is going to become something that has to happen because you can't keep track anymore. It is. It's the same thing. It is raising the bar and raising the stakes for everybody. I would still argue that in terms of having a, a rollout screwed by the last 
eight months, it's pretty tough to uh, to beat Quibi. Um, and this will oh, be our God. and this will be our last <laughs> chance to discuss Quibi because Quibi ceased to exist on December 1st. Um, and we already talked about its its disappearance, but rest in peace. But yes, yeah, so, the, you know, obviously we're going to keep talking about this every week, but this this is such a titanic shift for an entire industry, not just a medium within an industry. This is an entire industry shifting thing. And so thus we covered it, even though it's largely movies. It's not like Dune is going to win a TCA award next year. <laughs> Every opportunity to say that to make that joke, Dan, and I always chuckle. But I do, you know, do want to uh, do like a, a quick mini segment so we can call this TV's top five and a half this week. Number one and a half. Discovery Plus is a thing that is coming January fourth. This was going to be our first topic before Warner Brothers kind of blew up the, the film world. So. In short, Discovery Plus will be the biggest home for nonfiction programming online. The platform will launch January 4th and be home to content from lifestyle networks, including Discovery, TLC, HGTV, Food Network, OWN, Travel Channel, Animal Planet. The service will cost you $5 a month with ads or $7 without them. It's going to launch with a bunch of preview content from uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines' upcoming Magnolia Network, set to about later in 2020, And... Yeah, it's basically all the nonfiction stuff that you've probably been spending a lot of time watching during the pandemic. That's all going to be on Discovery Plus because they were smart and they didn't offload it elsewhere. They saved it all. They saved all the streaming rights to launch this big service. So they have all, all you know, 90 Day Fiance and the 17,000 spinoffs from that all at your fingertips starting January 4th for as little as five bucks. So, so watch all your home home improvement shows, all your cooking shows. I can watch all my home organizational stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, if you've been waiting to binge House Hunters, oh, this will be your opportunity to binge 500 plus episodes of House Hunters. So, eh, you know, this it's, may be the best bargain out there right now. No, it's it absolutely this has value and it would have been a very worthy topic all on its own, but sorry, Discovery Plus, you, you, you just got usurped. <laughs> yeah, Disco wait, Disco let's play this game, Dan. Discovery Plus, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, Apple TV Plus. BET Plus. BET Plus. I'm just going to start calling us TV's top five plus. Well, what do you say? As you say, we added a, an extra half a segment this week, so there we go. we've earned it. There we go. Well, it's let's move on to uh, our, our next topic. What do you say, Dan? Absolutely. And the next topic is, oh, yes, it's time for another ride on the executive carousel. Number two. It's time for another one of our favorite topics, where Leslie explains the latest paradigm-shifting industry executive changes, and I nod politely. So this week, big shifts. And I mean, this, you know, honestly, this could have been another number one topic for the week. It would have probably bored a lot of our listeners to tears, but it's still... It's, it's okay. Would have bored some of our listeners to tears. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. No, no, no. Let, let's be real. There are plenty of listeners out there who would have no clue what was going on if it were not for you in this particular department, and I am one of them. So... Basically, break down what happened this week involving ABC, Disney, 20th TV, Fox, a bunch of names that we've heard before. Where do things stand, Leslie? 
This was basically the next wave of the Disney reorganization. So we talked a little bit briefly a couple of weeks ago about the changes to Peter Rice's group. But now you're seeing all the changes in Dana Walden's entertainment programming group. So if you are a fan of television and watch a lot of content on ABC and on Hulu, this affects you. So what we saw this week is ABC Entertainment President Carrie Burke, who has been in the job since November 2018 when she took over for, for Channing Dungey, is no longer running ABC. Instead, she was uh, moved over to the studio, to 20th Century Fox Television, which dropped Fox as part of the Disney acquisition earlier this year. So the studio now is absorbing Touchstone Television, which was rebranded from Fox 21 earlier this year. That was Burt Salky's division. Burt Salky is the executive who developed shows like Homeland, for example. Burt Salky is out of a job. Instead, he's going to return to producing and, and signed a whopping four-year deal with Disney to develop content for across the company's portfolio of networks and streaming services. So what does this mean? So ABC is now going to be run by... Hulu's Craig Erwick. So the guy who is developing all of these shows at Hulu, Hulu's Penis, Shrill, The Handmaid's Tale, the guy at Greenlit, all of those shows is now overseeing content for both Hulu and the broadcast network. So Craig Erwick, we should note, has spent a lot of time in the broadcast uh, world. He previously was an executive over at Fox. He previously also in addition to, to working at Fox for a number of years, he has studio experience during his time working for Peter Roth at Warner Brothers. He's a respected executive with good taste. Obviously, The Handmaid's Tale was the first streaming show to win Best Drama at the Emmys. He's developed a lot of stuff that we've talked about on, on our show, Dan. And this is the latest move to really better integrate Disney for the streaming future. Like how many times can we can we say streaming is the priority in this episode and in, on this show? It's, it's like a bingo card or a drinking game now. Every time we say prioritize streaming, take a shot. Or if it's in the morning, take another shot of espresso if you're listening to us, you know, with your morning walk. So, yeah, this is Disney consolidating resources. So. At the beginning of the year, Disney had four TV studios. It's now down to two. 20th TV, which is going to be overseen by Carrie Burke, who before running ABC was the number two over at Freeform. And before that was a producer and an executive at NBC where she developed shows like the original Will and Grace, this little show called Friends, and another uh, maybe a medical drama you may have heard of called ER. So she's got great taste. Great relationships. She's one of the, the main reasons why David E. Kelly came back to broadcast after swearing it off for a number of years. And she's going to be working directly with all of the roster of overall deals at 20th TV. So people like Dan Fogelman, for example, has a deal there. So she's going to help develop these shows and will work with the different networks like Hulu and Craig Erwick at, for, for ABC and Tara Duncan at Freeform and help figure out what content that the studio is developing is going to go where in the Disney portfolio, including Disney Plus, et cetera. So a lot of changes. So what does it basically mean is it's a greater emphasis for Craig Erwick. So maybe he's got some data of how some of these ABC shows perform the next day on Hulu. I don't know. Maybe that'll change. I have no idea. We're still waiting to see. This literally just happened a couple of days ago, but it's Again, you're consolidating resources, you're putting, you know, people in better positions to succeed who have strong creative relationships with top showrunners, and you're empowering studio executives to really be the ones in charge of deciding what content works best within the company. And the other piece of it is, is 
all of these studios, yeah, they're closing their doors. They're not going to be selling very much to outside companies, which is a big reason why you're seeing Netflix continue to to be a draw for for a lot of content creators and and scoop up a lot of these prolific showrunners with big overall deals. So, yeah, my my head's spinning, Dan. And as part of this too, you're there's a lot of layoffs, as we said at the top of the show. Layoffs underway today at Disney. You know, our, our hearts go out to those Im- impacted. There's a lot of talented people at that company. They they brought in a ton of really smart executives as part of the Fox deal from a few years ago. But yeah, that company is losing a lot of money. I think this is all and all of the steps that there have been along the way, just a reminder of how massive the Disney Fox deal was when it happened. You know, I think people realized how massive it was, but this underlines it again, that that they're still basically reorganizing pieces from a deal that came into place two years ago. Uh, I find it interesting, all of this happening with no mention of FX. It sort of puts FX in its own little island space run by John Landgraf, which I guess probably is both what he wants and encouraging if what you want is to believe that they're going to continue to be their own little fiefdom within this vast kingdom. So, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. We did receive a a listener email asking about John Landgraf specifically, and he has maintained for years, years, that he wants to stay at FX, that the only lane he wants to be in is at FX. So they wanted him to run Hulu years ago, which is what was the rumor. Craig Erwick remains in that position. He's been rumored to be going elsewhere or up for other jobs for the last feels like two or three years at the very least. So what they did instead is, and we've talked about this at length, is they set up a tab on Hulu called FX on Hulu, where you're seeing all of the new programming from FX launch first on FX on Hulu or exclusively on FX on Hulu. So why the last man in in development for like eight bazillion years at FX launching on FX on Hulu, American horror stories, the anthology offshoot from American horror story, the anthology will air on, on FX on Hulu and not on the linear network. So the other piece that we're waiting to see of how this is going to shake out is how much Landgraf will continue to develop for FX specifically versus for FX on Hulu and how much Craig Erwick will develop specifically for Hulu versus specifically for ABC. And the other piece is you've got, you know, all these content suppliers and all these different development teams. You have a development team at Hulu, a development team at ABC, a development team at 20th Century Fox, at 20th TV. Are all three development teams going to remain or is that what's really being hit by layoffs today? Because I'm hearing it's at 20th a lot. A lot of people at 20th and a lot of people at ABC but it is all under Peter Rice's group that are being affected today from everything that, I, as I understand it, and I should note as I record this, I've gotten 17 different text messages from different sources as this story is developing. So there's a lot going on, and if I sound harried, it's well, it's because I am. <laughs> this is a lot. Stay sane, the, Leslie. The, 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 the industry is changing faster than anyone can truly keep up with it, and there's a lot of talented people that that are going to be out out of work and. We send our, our, our respect to those people for, um, for, for what they're going through. I've, I've certainly been through it in my career, and it's not fun. So we'll continue to monitor all the changes and how things shake out. But yeah, this has been uh, the executive carousel uh, segment. Up third. Number three. Felicity Huffman's comeback has begun. Leslie, tell the kids where the scandal prone, well, not really scandal prone, but scandal sullied, Emmy winning actress has popped up this week. 
Yes. Well, Felicity Huffman will is attached to star in an untitled baseball comedy that is currently in development at ABC. And what that means is, you know, the comedy is going to focus on the life of Susan Savage, who's the owner of the Sacramento Rivercats, the San Francisco Giants AAA affiliate. And it's in development. So what that means right now is it's a script. It's an idea. ABC has paid producers to write a script and it's got a, a penalty is a, a put pilot or I think a production commitment. And all that really, you know, th that's basically just jargon for saying that there's a decent size financial penalty if this doesn't go to pilot or go to series. So they'll have to pay a fee if it, if it doesn't go anywhere. And the fact that she's attached to it at an early at an early point is part of an ongoing trend that we've seen of a lot of these these scripts and ideas coming a little bit more fully formed than just an idea on paper or an idea that that's that's bought in a in a pitch meeting. So it's all you know having talent attached always helps a show kind of get over the finish line or at least get to the pilot stage. But yeah, the bigger piece of news here isn't the fact that that she's going to star in this show, it's the fact that she's getting work again. So Felicity Huffman's got a long track record at ABC. She starred in Desperate Housewives and American Crime at the network. And this is her first job after she served 11 days of a 14-day sentence after she pled guilty to mail fraud as part of the college cheating scandal known as Operation Varsity Blues. I don't so bigger want topic here. your life. I don't want your show. Give me pitch instead. Anyway, that's off topic. Um, the whole The bigger point of this segment is Hollywood is the most forgiving town, Dan, it seems like. So Mel Gibson continues to get work. Are, are you know, should, does Felicity Huffman deserve the next shot? You know, do, what do you think? This is really where you come in. This is a Dan segment, not a Leslie segment. No, no, it's a both of us segment. Uh, but no, I don't think that it comes down to whether she should or shouldn't. The part that interests me is what it's going to take to allow this show to exist on its own. Like part of why you attach her name in the first place is to get people's minds associated and used to her name being associated with this. That's that's just part of what it is. You know, you you start the processing part right now and then maybe when the show actually premieres in, I don't know, this hypothetical show might premiere next September. It might premiere the following March. Who the heck knows? And it might never exist. That being the great thing about pilots. exactly. Uh, but still, now, it's not even a pilot. It's a script. Exactly. It's not even going to get made yet. It's an idea that they're paying someone to write into a script. And yet they still have her name front and center, which means we're talking about what we might not be talking about under normal circumstances. We wouldn't necessarily be talking about just a random script about uh, about Susan Savage, the owner of the Sacramento River Cats. But suddenly you put Felicity Huffman's name in front of it. And yeah, what I'm going to be interested to see is how the Felicity Huffman rehabilitation tour goes before this hypothetical show gets anywhere near airing. What are they going to have to do to make it OK to have her? Obviously, the thing she did was not it was not a violent crime. The the victims, well, the victims are the integrity of a system that impacts people to different degrees and in which she was able to game as part of her economic privilege. So it's not like it's a victimless crime, but it, you know, she, it not spousal abuse, not virulent racism, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just going to be interested to see how 
they handle her and what interviews she's going to have to do to discuss this so that it's not the only thing people want to talk about. Because ABC knows that if they put this show on next September or next March or April, if they do publicity for it, there's no way she's not going to have to deal with a dozen questions every single interview about spending 11 days in jail. How do you find a way to preempt some of those questions? How do you find a way so that people don't need to make that the lead of every review, every article, every conversation they have about this? That's the real question. And I think it's much more germane to Felicity Huffman than it was going to be to Lori Loughlin anyway. I, I mean, you know, Felicity Huffman is vastly more acclaimed and bankable as an actress, and she was always going to get more work again. It's not like she was just going to cease to exist. So, you know, what what does she do so that she can go back to business in her career? And it's going to be interesting to see, but I think it is still a notable thing to see how Hollywood forgives people, how quickly Hollywood forgives people, and what things Hollywood forgives people because as you say, yes, Mel Gibson gets to make an R-rated uh, Christmas movie, and that's just apparently okay. Um, I mean, he still has representation. He still gets movie job after movie job after movie job, Dan. I mean, and, and the things, you know, his... Yeah. And his and his yeah, and his I, alleged crimes are vastly more repugnant yes. and repulsive than anything that Felicity Huffman did. So thank you for saying that in a way that is far better than the words that were going through my it, mind. Uh, Mel Gibson is garbage and that's just what it is. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, at some point, Mel Gibson's going to do a TV show. It's it's just one of these days, you know, so it's going to be a question of what streaming service is going to be all excited about their gritty Mel Gibson drama. And it's coming. So just just get ready for it. Uh, my my bet Paramount Plus someday with a Mel Gibson gritty crime drama. Um, perhaps Nick Pizzolatto writing it, man, that would be a recipe for some fun. But that's not what we're talking about now, because that's not what Mel Gibson's doing. So yes, this is this is a segment about redemption, or about forgiveness, or just about Felicity Huffman. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> well, I feel like that's a good note to end this one on, Dan. Up next, let's go to our showrunner spotlight segment. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Number four. Our guest this week is Peter Moffat, BAFTA winning creator of the British dramas Cambridge Spies, Undercover, and Criminal Justice, which was adapted by HBO as The Night Of. Moffat's new series is Showtime's Your Honor, which he adapted from the Israeli format Kavodo. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Leslie. Great pleasure. So what were the steps that that brought you together with Showtime for this, uh, for your honor? So Liz Glotzer, the producer on the show, rang me 
And she did that. Um, her career, by the way, has been in film. So she made uh, Shawshank Redemption and When Harry Met Sally and Green Mile, whole list of terrific movies. So um, I was listening when she rang me. And she did that pretty clever thing, I think, of not saying, here's a premise, right? She just came right in with what turned out to be the premise and said, what would you do if your child was responsible for dot, dot, dot? Uh, and in this instance, what would, your, what would you do if your child came home and told you that they'd hit, knocked over and killed uh, a 17-year-old boy and ran away from the scene of the accident? What, what do you do as a parent? To, to which my answer, I, I think probably in common with most people, most parents would be uh, go to the police station, explain everything, uh, work hard at you know getting a good lawyer and, and try to make it work. Explain how your son panicked and isn't, it's not himself and all of that stuff. But then, of course, the second question comes, from Liz on the phone, which is a much tougher question. Um, and this is a spoiler alert, I suppose. It's in the first episode, but it's a spoiler alert, so I should just warn you. Um, what would you do if you discover at the police station that the the boy that's dead on the roadside is the son of the main man in the biggest and most vicious crime family in the southern United States? Do you go into the police station now with your son, or do you turn around and go home? And um, I've kind of road tested this question quite a lot, actually, with, with friends and family and whatever. Actually, hundreds of times I've asked people, right? And nearly everybody says, um, you turn around and you go to Canada now. And that's the kind of you know, response. So what I liked about those two questions is that, is that when Liz finished the call with me, I Quite literally, this sounds like nonsense. It sounds like a writer-speak thing, okay? But it's true. I quite literally moved from one room into my study and started writing down other questions. I had about 100 of them very, very quickly, imagining being that person in those circumstances and asking myself questions like, question number three, what would I do to cover up the evidence? Question number four, who would I tell or not tell? Would I would I tell the truth to the person that I needed to help me? Uh, what would it mean to not tell the truth? And, and you get from question five to question 100 really, really fast, which was, which was great, which, which just told me really, really simply, to be honest with you, that um, this was going to make for, you know, um, for good drama, really. Um, so that, that, was the, that was the genesis of the story of, of this production. And where in the process was the Israeli drama that was sort of the basis for the this? Were you told immediately, okay, we have this format that we're trying to adapt? Did you want to watch it? Did you skip it entirely? I was told, and I was terrified of watching it. After my first long night of the 100 questions and finding that I was thinking very hard, and I felt at the time, you know, well about what the show could be, um, I was then extremely worried about watching somebody else's idea of what the same premise could be, which was the original Israeli version, which is wonderful, by the way, and you should watch it, <laughs> right? But I stayed away from it. I, I avoided it because I was just, I didn't want somebody else's thinking in my, in, in my brain while my brain was functioning okay, 
right? I just thought, just just stay with my own way of thinking about this. Um, it's a it's a bit like Daniel. I don't know if you you think this. It's a bit like um, when you're writing. Sometimes there are there are writers that it's bad to read because their voice is so strong, right? That that it can it can get into your head and it, you know become a problem and. and you, you adopt the sound sometimes of other writers if you're not careful. So there are strong voices that you have to avoid when you're in the middle of a you know writing patch, I find. And it sounds like this was brought to you as already being an American version of the story. How comfortable were you with the with the milieu, with the backdrop that you were handed here, I guess? I've had such a nice time writing in a foreign language. It's been a real kind of <laughs> joy and a and a challenge and it slowed me down because every time somebody opens their mouth dialogue, it just takes me longer to be sure that what I'm saying feels right. Um, but I, you know, obviously I've spent, um, the last two years, you know, by and large in the United States and mostly in new Orleans. So, you know, um, you, you, and listening, and maybe, just maybe, as an outsider, the, the quality of the listing is a little bit different and, and the kind of nervousness that comes with wanting to be sure that you're authentic, which, you know, certainly prevents complacency, right? So, you, you know, uh, and um, so, but, you know, I've had my moments. There's usually one per draft, right, that people pick out and laugh their heads off at because it's, a, it's an English Englishism, you know, and uh, yeah. I, see, now I really want to hear an example. What What is an example of an Englishism? Okay, the title, the title of the show is unbearable for me to look at, right? H-O-N-O-R. <laughs> Where's the U? The title see, of the show is misspelled. It's horrendous for me to kind of deal with. <laughs> That, that's how I feel every time I see the word theater, R-E instead of E-R. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. S says the former copy editor. So, yeah. Um, you know, you've got a, an impressive list of uh, British TV, TV work that showcases, obviously, your, your big interest in the criminal justice system. Have you had a similar interest in the American system here? Yeah, so, so so my history is that I was at the, at the criminal bar here in the UK. I worked as a barrister for about 10 years before I started writing seriously. So um, I had that experience in, in, in Britain. And I, I suppose, Leslie, I kind of felt, um, you know, it, that, that takes you inside prisons and inside jails. It takes you, you know, through the system as a barrister, then up close to people in crisis and people in trouble, Um and I felt myself to be fairly um, unshockable. Um, you know, British prisons are not nice. They're old Victorian, you know, cramped, ugly places. Um, but, but, but so I came to the US it, with that sense of confidence in being able to look at the way things are in the US as I do in the UK. Oh, my God, I was shocked. You know, I mean, going to Angola, or going into OPP, or seeing the conveyor belt that is the courthouse in Chicago, which is, you know, as you probably know, the busiest courthouse in America um, at 26th and California, where um, essentially human beings look very much like they're on a conveyor belt of criminal processing, that there's no time to speak with your lawyer, 
there's no sense that you as the person appearing in court um, have any idea or any right to know what on earth is going on. Um, and most shocking for me, um, I mean, even just from the point of view of the optics, to see um, African-American men chained around the ankles and around the wrists being shuffled into court by white people is a it was a a sort of devastating experience for me and and a, a, i don't know why i didn't think it would look like that i i was in chicago on one occasion in a um shopping mall a kind of subterranean shopping mall i didn't know but down there in that shopping mall is a civil court not a criminal court a civil court but on that monday morning and whenever it was it was the day for prisoners to be brought to make appearances in civil court right like you know family matters or whatever and the prisoners for the day brought from prison were were chained together in a in a in a, in a chain gang right and they were moved through the shopping mall while people who were doing their shopping were kind of held back by security and we watched a line of chained men being processed through a shopping mall in 2019. And it was a deeply alarming picture, as, as you can imagine, for me. And um, so, I, you know, I, I've, I mean, I, I was there to write about it, but if, if I had any doubts about it, I was very compelled then to, to, to make sure that I wanted to try and, um, I suppose, share my shock is the best way of putting it, really. Because I, I wonder whether people as a whole understand that that's what it looks like and we went to the um angola rodeo do you know about that so this is a an event at which ten thousand members of the public are invited to an arena in which th there's a rodeo and prisoners take part and the games are things like um prisoners sit in chairs in the middle of the arena and a bull is released into the arena, okay? And the winner of the game is the last prisoner still sitting down while the bull charges at them and does what it does and everything. And most years, people go to hospital, right, um, as a result of it. And the claim that the prison makes is that the inmates love it because, well, I know, I know why they say that. It may even be true because out of 365 days locked up in that place to be, you know, outside in the open air experiencing something different, you know, it is a temptation, I think, ugly and horrendous though it is. Um, sorry, I, I'm ranting a little bit, but I, I feel strongly about it. Well, I think it's interesting, though, because the, the central story of the show is one of these privileged people navigating the system with their economic and racial privilege. How early on in your research did you realize that you had to make it clear that there was that there were the two sides of the judicial system? Was that always kind of in your in your vision or in your process? Really early. And 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 one of the key things, Daniel, is that is that the is that the the main character, Michael Desiato, the judge, understands that himself. He's that, you know, unusual thing, I think a sort of I suppose you can call him liberal. And, and certainly working hard to find the truth when it's sometimes difficult to do that, right, um, in a system which requires speed, justice is sometimes slower than everybody wants it to be, okay? And he's prepared to take the time and take the flack 
to do that. But but living in New Orleans, as he does, you know, tells you that you know by far and away the highest percentage of of ethnic groups that come through that courthouse will be African American. It's just a you know matter of fact. It'll be ninety percent or so. Um, so uh, you know, and um, you know, this is a complicated business, but um, it's. It's also true that you know the the lower ninth ward and those sections of New Orleans which are predominantly black are predominantly poor um and that's the starting place for Michael Desiato the judge. He knows all of that he has that in his brain, and it's therefore interesting when um other people suffer as a consequence of his actions, who are those people who he seeks to understand and protect and do well by um which you know, now in my hundred questions, I'm around question 17, right? Which is, you know, who who are you prepared to allow to pay for what your son has done? Is somebody else's life worth less than your child? Right? Which is a, a really good question and a much better question than question one. Um, and, you know, a good question to ask oneself, I think. Yeah, you know, so the story in, in your honor is is primarily about how, People of privilege, specifically white people, have resources to game the system, while people of color get dehumanized and erased. So how did you decide how much race, but also how much economic issues would be the spine of the show? Well, so, you know, I, um, you won't be surprised to hear that I do a, 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 an awful lot of research. It's really, really important to me, and particularly as an outsider. And you can see from, hear from my accent that, you know, I don't, I don't belong in New Orleans. Um, so I had to know that I understood it as best as I possibly could before starting to write about it properly. So I spent an awful lot of time there. Um, and it, there it is, you know, every day there it is in the criminal justice system that that's how it looks. And that's how it is that exactly as you say it, Leslie, that, you know, um, people who have an African-American ethnicity, um, are up against it when they're put through the criminal justice system and their equivalent, you know, like me, um, so much easier, you know, pay for a lawyer, get treated differently. You know, it's, um, I've seen judges who, who don't look at the person in front of them, right. Who have no eye contact with the person in front of them. But should that person turn around to look for their mother or brother who they hope to get a quick glimpse of in the public gallery, then they're chastised for doing that. You know, look at me. Uh, in, it, even down to the level of eye contact, you know, a, a basic sort of human civility is, you know, allowed to be absent in those places, which is really alarming to look at. And you mentioned that you're coming at this from an outsider perspective. And it's interesting that I feel like a lot of the characters, the main characters in the story are also that, that that you didn't, for example, have your core family speaking with a New Orleans accent, that a lot of the characters, in fact, seem to be outsiders themselves. What was your approach in that respect? So the first person I, I met at all in my whole history of time in New Orleans was the cab driver who, who took me from the airport to where I was staying. And, uh, he, he sounded exactly like he was from Brooklyn, right? That was his kind of thing. And I said, are you from Brooklyn? And he said, no, I'm from New Orleans. I thought, oh, boy, okay. It's, you, know, you know, Daniel, it's a real 
melting pot of voices. You know, it's a melting pot of lots of things, New Orleans. But one of the things is, you know, the voices and the accents are many and various. Like London, like London, you know, I, you know, I sound, I don't know, I don't know, like Prince Charles or something, right? And I'm one of, I, I'm going to say, you know, 6,000 different sounds that I could hear on any one day in London, all of whom are speaking English. Uh, and that's true of New Orleans as well. You know, remarkable kind of difference in and uh, distinctiveness and variation in sound and voice. It's wonderful. And then there's the music. Well, and then having Edward Berger, a German director behind the camera, that's another outsider perspective on the story. Was that something that you always thought was ideal and necessary from the beginning? I love Edward Berger with all of my heart because um, and for for purely selfish reasons in part, which is I, I've never come across a director who pays more attention to every single word of the script. Um, so every stage direction, because I, this is going to sound a little bit self-important and pompous, right? But it really, it really, really, stage directions really, really matter to me. The difference between a semicolon and a comma is profound, right? You don't, you know, a semicolon is there for a reason. And everybody should understand that's why that that it is there for a reason, and it's different from a comma. And there are hundreds and hundreds of examples of that. And Ed understands that, so he understood. For example, in the in the pilot, there's a the big kind of centerpiece action sequence is an accident, right? And it's pages and pages and pages. And he shot that, and then you get seven minutes of material, which. You know, I happen to think I would say this, wouldn't I? Is remarkable for its attention to detail, right? Because it says at the top of the show, you, the audience, will be inside the shoes of people who are in the show. You will share the perspective of characters in this show, right? You will feel what it's like to be that young kid who's in that moment at that time. Um, and that's really, really important. You know, the, the show was announced with Brian Cranston as the father, who's obviously willing to do anything, sometimes even breaking the law for the good of his family. How much did Breaking Bad have an impact on you and on how you and Brian decided to approach this character and the dark choices that he makes? So um, Brian was cast... Um, I think when we had first drafts of all of about eight episodes, right? So we were we we hadn't been writing with him in mind, and I hadn't been writing with him in mind. Um, but it, it it was very important to cast some. Well, first of all, it was very important to cast somebody over the age of fifty who looks like he can run twenty six point two miles because the character is a marathon runner, right? Brian has run marathons in the past. His personal best is a little bit better than my personal best for the marathon, so that kind of really endeared me to him. Um, but he's—I um, it, it, wanted somebody who has a long way to fall, which meant that you need an actor who has a um, essential decency about them that they carry with them. You, you know, you can um, you can be on the street with Brian, and people come up to him and they say things like. Um, keep on doing what you're doing, right? And that obviously doesn't mean carry on being a meth-making chemistry teacher who fucks up the whole world around him, right? It's, it's, because, it's because they feel about Brian that he has a, an integrity and a dignity and a decency that he just has. 
um, the, kind of, the, the sort of old-fashioned version of that, if you know, would be Gregory Peck, who I think in you know To Kill a Mockingbird is is sort of one of, an example of the most perfect piece of casting. He's everybody's dad in that, right? So you want to be Scout because Gregory Peck gets to look after you, okay? And I think and I think for Brian, he just he, with Brian, he just has that. So it's a long way for him to fall, um, and that that. That makes his, I'm going to use that horrible word, journey, um, uh, a, a much more interesting one because he has such a long way to go. Were there early conversations that you had with him where he expressed any concerns about overlaps in the thematic arcs of the two shows? Just you know, saying, OK, I've I've kind of gone down that path before. Is there any chance we can go down this path with the character, for example? Um, not paths, but he but he, but he picked out there were there were. Two moments in a, in earlier drafts of two episodes, where uh, unbeknownst to me, I mean, I'd written them, but I didn't recognise it at the time. When Brian says, "No, that's just way too close to something that happened in Breaking Bad," um, so let's not have that. And you know, and I mean, it was it was it was a rarely used veto, right? <laughs> but he, he used it a couple of times, quite rightly, because you know. Um, I'm going to say that three quarters of our audience will have, you know, uh, seen and loved Breaking Bad. So it's important, you know. Yeah. You know, in a landscape like this, that is so just everyone is now trained for binge watching. How did you approach the the weekly nature of how you wanted to tell the story? No differently, Leslie, is the honest answer. You know, I, 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 I've never written anything for, with, I know Showtime doesn't have commercial breaks, but anything that I've written for anybody that does have commercial breaks, I never write for the ad break. Um, I think that you should write. And then if, if you can't find your four or five moments in any episode, which are exciting places to stop and go and look at some yogurt for a bit, then you're not doing your job properly. So, you know, I kind of, I, I, I don't want to be pushed around by the form, really. Is, I suppose is the answer. I think you need to tell your story really, really well, um, and then you know m- make it fit with the demands of the of of, of what sort of, sh- what, of how it's being shown and where it's being shown and whether it's once a week or not. Um, that's almost a truthful answer, but I suppose I would say two other things. Um, I suppose I do pay a little bit more attention to what is the hook than. If you, I knew that the person, the audience was going to watch it in five minutes' time rather than a week's time, and 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 then there's the quite good thing, which is, it's quite good knowing an audience is going to have a week off, right? Uh, because sometimes you can say to yourself, that can sit with them for a bit, you know, and and I know that it has to sit with them for a bit. I know that I've been given seven days here, and that's quite a good feeling actually sometimes. Yeah, and and as you were writing this too, you know, one one of the big things that's happening specifically in American TV is we're seeing shows that are announced as limited series that find success, and then all of a sudden they're no longer limited, and that they're renewed for a second season or they become an anthology. How would you describe your honor? <laughs> that's, a good, that's a really well put question. I kind of um, so it, you know, it, it's a limited series. And there are ten episodes. Do I know what a second series was would look like? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a short order drama series that could live on for a second season with the same cast, 
Or is it, you know, like, will Brian Cranston be back? Well, is there a new case every season as you kind of think about the future of, of your honor and this franchise itself? How are you thinking about it? Totally not talked about, never discussed amongst the group, uh, uh, with, with, not with Showtime, not with Brian, not with anybody. Okay, we, we haven't got there, gone there, or thought about it at all. You know, full focus on what we're doing now. But, you know, it, you'd be a strange human being, let alone writer, to not contemplate what episode 11 might look like as you finish episode 10, right? And, of course, I've done that. <laughs> well, it's interesting, though, because you you did Criminal Justice, which became the night of over here. And when you did a second season of that, you did an entirely separate second season, right? Whereas when people have talked about a hypothetical second season of the night of over here, people have talked about it continuing with the same characters. So where does your mind go most primarily? Would you want to look at you know, a different version within the justice system, or would you want to look at a different story about Michael Desiato? Well, I can speak specifically to the night of, because Riz Ahmed's character, he's done. That he, He's finished. He, he, he went from, you know, from a normal life right the way through the processing of the criminal justice system and out the other side, and we understood how changed he was by all of that, okay? So any season following that with him in it would just would be about how he's been affected by it which doesn't sound like a great premise to me for following his character. You know, um, John Turturro's character is, an, is another, another thing, you know, the, the, the lawyer who represented him. Um, I think you just have to be really rigorous and truthful with yourself and, and ask yourself that key question, which is, you know, is the story over or not? You know, um, you just have to be tough on yourself and untempted by you know those who want to tempt you into doing something you don't want to do because you know after all it's two or three years of your life right <laughs> you know and um i'm 58 years old and you know so i'm probably halfway haha -ha, right but it's kind of like so you know two or three years matters okay it really does um so you, you can't allow yourself to not be honest because uh, it'll make you unhappy i think you know but television gets things the wrong way around really, really badly, right? You walk into a room and, and half an hour later, having pitched to a group of people an idea, which may be semi-formed or whatever, right? And they might say yes to you, okay? And then, then the three years begins, right? And you've probably spent, you know, a few weeks or days kind of thinking about it as hard as you're able, but the commitment that you then make is absurd. It's, it's you know, what, what I would love to do as a writer, and, and I keep telling myself I'm going to do this, is, is come up with an idea and not tell anybody, right? And spend, spend a year with your idea, right? Doing all of the work and all of the research that needs to be done so that it's as close to being, you know, as fully formed in your own brain as possible. Then you know, you know, whether it's going to make you happy for three more years or not, right? And, you know, uh, it's not true in America, but it, uh, or it's less true in America, I think, in American television. But on British television, there are a lot of shows that are great and great and then fall flat at the end, right? And th the reason is what I've just been describing, okay, that... It, it it all turns into a big hurry it, it, at the back end of everything, right? Story uh, 
telling becomes something which is you know uh, uh, done in too short a time, and it's a it's a problem with with some television, I think. Well, with this as your first fully immersed American television show, how did you like the process of being in the American TV beast? Was it was it what you expected or was it surprising constantly? Made me um, profoundly happy. Some of that profound happiness comes with being surprised constantly. I don't know. It, it's only anecdotal, Daniel. It's only one show. I had a tremendous time. I, met, I had lovely people all around me all of the time. We had, you know, a kind of wondrous crew who, you know, sat out seven months while the pandemic raged, you know, and all came back, you know, to finish the show. We had 35 days at the end unshot when we shut down uh, in March and came back on October the 7th, you know, and everybody was there and it was pretty great to see people, you know. Um, so we had a lovely time. So, you know, it, it, was, um, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. You mentioned having to come back following the, the the production shutdown in March. What was would you say is the biggest change to the way that you filmed the end of the series? And were there scenes that you wound up cut, having to cut out that you were unable to film with the new safety protocols that are in place? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, Leslie, the great luxury of this, you know, of the dreadfulness of the pandemic was that I got to look at and revise and think about material that hadn't been shot, so inc including all of the last episode, so uh, which is directed by Brian Cranston. Um, so he and I were able to kind of like, you know, talk through every moment, every scene in, in real kind of depth with plenty of time, you know, um, not actually knowing if we'd ever get back, you know, that was the kind of the weird thing about it. But it, it, it I think it really helped, you know, um, it was for a terrible reason that we had a breathing space three quarters of the way through our shoot. But it, it, you know, everybody should do it if they can. You know, it was really useful, actually. Was Brian always slated to to direct the last episode, or was that something that changed um, as a result of the pandemic? It became a really good idea um, because his engagement with the show is so kind of complete. I've never had more notes from anybody, right? Than from our, after all, lead actor, okay, who's also obviously an EP, but they're great notes and really valuable. Um, and we sat, you know, once a week in New Orleans for I don't know four hours at a time, and talked through blow by blow everything that his character was doing and and everything that every other character was doing. Um, and what a what a privilege, what a luxury to have. Um, the boots on the ground communicating to you yeah. what it feels like to be the boots on the ground um, in advance of being the boots on the ground while being the boots on the ground so that when you're writing the boots on the ground, the boots on the ground sound right and everybody fits in them. <laughs> and it's also safer because those boots have already been on the ground and you don't need to bring in and out someone who hasn't been on the set and have them quarantine before and after and get tested and all that other and all that other stuff that's happening across the industry. So, yeah. And how about the experience of having to live with the first eight episodes during the quarantine period? Because I assume that gave you a much longer post-production window than you ever would have had Um did you, was there a certain point at which you had to stop yourself from watching those episodes because you just couldn't do it anymore? No. And, and the real answer is that I'm still doing it. You know, we're, um, as we speak, editing episode nine. 
so uh, we're, we're not quite finished yet. Um, the show goes out on Sunday, as you know, the first episode, um, and we're still working on it in post. But it, it was weird when we went back because you have to rehearse in mask and face shield. So actors are, you know, walls between them. Uh, and it, and it, and it, you know, and obviously six feet away and all of that stuff. But you know what the real answer to actually, I'm going to answer, this isn't a question, but I'm going to answer a question that I think I would be asking if I were listening to me. And the answer to that question is none of us work down a coal mine, right? We're working on a film set. It's okay. I think film sets may be in these dreadful times, one of the safest places to be on earth, frankly, because the protocols are so good and so tough and so, you know, full that um you know it's it's it, it it worked and we're lucky yeah it's just a shame that there's still so many positive tests and and shows it feels like i'm reading about this every single day that that another show is being shut down because of positive tests or with you know a member of the cast or the crew or um yeah it's 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 crazy but also you know the virus is out of control uh here in la and i think we were just talking before we started recording it's it's you know pretty bad in london too well, um, one thing we do wanted to to ask, too, is, you know, the show is produced by Robert and Michelle King, who are TV royalty here here in the U.S. What was your experience of working with them like and, and what did they really bring to the to the project? Oh, you know, bows and curtsies to begin with and that kind of thing for TV royalty. You know? <laughs> <laughs> then a few drinks, few drinks later, it was all OK. You know, it's kind of <laughs> um, they're, they're great. I don't know how Robert and Michelle do it because they, you know, they're making, I think, I don't know, three other shows at the moment, right? Plus seemingly being able to pay full attention to everything we do on Your Honor. So, you know, middle of the night emails from Robert. I don't think he sleeps. I don't think either of them sleep. Uh, you know, whole focus and attention is on the work, which is, you know, extraordinary. And, you know, very, very, we're very, very lucky to have them. They're, they're great. They're a great pair. And just we we always like to wrap with the with the same question. So what have you been watching and enjoying lately? So I watched um, Queen's Gambit because um, my wife said, oh, you should watch Queen's Gambit. So I went on to her Netflix and uh, clicked on her Netflix and started watching Queen's Gambit. And I loved it. I thought, what a great episode. And she was in the same room as me at the time. And she was watching me watch it. And then at the end, I went, oh, like that. And um, she said, what? What just happened? And I, I said, the mum just died. And then she said, you're watching episode four, right? And I thought I'd been watching episode one, all right? And it was episode four. <laughs> and it totally works. <laughs> totally works as a really grown-up piece of television, which doesn't bother with lots of exposition, right? And just kind of takes you right in it. <laughs> I recommend it. Have a go at watching episode four as episode one. It's lovely. Um, I don't know what to do now, though. Do I go? Do I go back to one and watch one, two, three, and then four again, or do I just carry on in my great happy state of loving this show? I don't know. <laughs> the the first episode is terrific, so I would say you should probably go back to that. Okay, so now my question to to that is: What would happen to someone who watched episode four of Your Honor first? Oh my god, they don't. <laughs> absolutely no idea what was going on although i do love a recap don't don't, don't you love a recap I'd, I'd love to do a one-hour recap that would be cool right <laughs> excellent well thank you so much for for joining us this week peter we appreciate it it's been great fun thank you so much
Your Honor premieres Sunday, December 6th on Showtime. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Selena, the series, and Big Mouth on Netflix. Shameless returns for its 11th and final season, followed by the debut of Your Honor on Showtime. Dan, what you got? Um, I'm going to lead with my favorite thing premiering this week, which is the fourth season of Big Mouth on Netflix. Uh, This has long been one of my favorite of Netflix's cartoons for adults, and it's really strong in the fourth season. I've seen the entire 10 episode season and it made me laugh. It made me cringe. It made me horribly, horribly embarrassed and uncomfortable. It made me very, very relieved that I was not watching episodes uh, on a screen in a public place that anyone could watch. Uh, It is absolutely more graphic and more harrowing in its treatment of adolescent anxiety than it has ever been before. It is also a show of such boundless empathy and boundless empathy for both genders, which is perhaps the thing that about it that's best is that it has uh, great awareness of what it is like to be a boy going through puberty and a girl going through puberty. And it is uh, it is uncomfortable in both respects. Uh, this season has one of my favorite vocal cameos or guest starring appearances Uh that the show has done previously, and I will not spoil it, but I will tease that the cameo comes from a former TV top five guest. So that's all I'll say on that subject. Uh, And it also includes one of my favorite musical numbers that the show has done. It is also interesting how the show handles the vocal transition for the character of Missy, uh, the biracial friend within the group who was formerly voiced by not biracial Jenny Slate um, and has changed voices or changes voices during the season. But the season is very much about her coming to understand her own racial identity. And it's a, it's a very interesting way that they've tackled what could have been an uncomfortable change to make. And I think they've made it in a way that is substantive and character centric and worth looking at in terms of how you handle a difficult situation. And so they're they're steering into it head on. And yeah, uh, but once again, this is a show that you do not want to be watching in a public place, uh, both because you will be snort laughing loudly and aggressively and because a lot of the animated imagery is out there. Um, Anyway, big old fan of Big Mouth and it comes back on Friday. We also have a couple of shows that we've had the showrunners on for the past couple of weeks, and you can check out our interview with uh, Moises Zamora from episode 96 from November 20th, uh, and he talks about bringing Selena's story to Netflix. If you go back and listen to that interview, you will hear Moises discuss the desire to make this a family viewing experience. And I think that is the thing you have to know about it going forward and you have to know to expect. It is a very earnest show. It is a very family forward show. And if you go looking for it to be something else, you will be frustrated by it. It is very down the middle. It is very earnest. And I've seen a lot of critics just not enjoying it for that reason. And I and I don't, you know, we say all the time, oh, this one's for the fans, not for the critics. No, this, this one really is for the fans and not the critics. And I think it's a true thing. 
But I, I understand how it's the intent of the story that he wants to be telling. It is it is hero worshipful. It is this is not a this is not a dark and grimy, uh, gritty take on Selena's life. What with half of her family as executive producers and advisors. So you wouldn't expect it to be. Um, th there were some things about it that worked for me. Uh, I stopped watching after four or five episodes and. That was just because it just simply wasn't really for me, but I understood what it was doing. And I think that some people will either embrace it on those terms or will tune out probably much faster than I did. Um, as for Your Honor, you just heard Peter Moffat discussing that one. And, and I'm mixed on this one as well. It is it is such a good cast. It, it's, you know, Brian Cranston in his first main TV role since Breaking Bad, because I don't count uh, Sneaky Pete or that animated thing he did on some streaming service I'm forgetting about, but tremendous cast. So it's Brian Cranston, it's Michael Stuhlbarge, it's Hope Davis. If you watch long enough, Marco Martindale shows up, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. shows up, such a good cast. And the story, which is really and truly a lot like the story of Defending Jacob, and a little bit like the story of Undoing, very much a story of privileged family about to go under, patriarch attempts to hold the family together, et cetera, et cetera. It's so familiar. And um, it, it, it's tough because sometimes you would just like for it to be a little bit more distinctive and different because everybody in it is so good. And you just want to sit and watch these people. Sometimes you don't necessarily want to sit and watch this show, but I found it watchable. And the, the central dilemma is compelling enough that it, it drives you along. So that would be those would be my thoughts on your honor. And yeah, those seem like those seem like things coming up. I haven't seen a lot of the the bigger movie type things that are coming out this weekend. So I'm definitely going to be watching David Fincher's Mank, which is premiering on Netflix this week. And uh, the Riz Ahmed Amazon drumming drama also premiering this weekend. Uh, so there, there are lots of things to watch. So plenty of stuff to watch, some good, some earnest and family friendly, etc. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. It helps us pop up in searches, etc., etc., etc. We are always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. So if you got comments, concerns, etc., come say hi to us. If you have questions, though, I don't feel like we can count on uh, Warner Brothers upending the industry on a weekly basis. So next week might be a terrific week for a mailbag segment. So uh, definitely we would love to get your questions at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Stay safe, everybody. Join me on The Turning Point, up close and personal with leaders and get to know what makes their metal and fiber. I am Keshav Murugesh and I look forward to unraveling greatness with you. The Turning Point Podcast is now on Spotify.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.